Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. I'm Jan Dawson and with me is Aaron Miller. We're going to kick off with our usual news roundup. Uh, we're going to talk about the uh, action by the Chinese government to block iTunes uh, movies and iBooks uh, in China um, after some of those services were just opened up a few months ago by Apple, finally after many years of not being there. We'll talk about the new MacBook that Apple announced this week and then we will talk about the uh, provisional settlement that Uber has reached with some of its uh, uh, contractors, and that's an important word, um, and the implications of that as regards Uber's future and also the on-demand economy in general. Our question of the week this week uh, will be, what should we make of the EU's antitrust action against Google? And we'll talk about what the European Union has actually done, uh, why it's done it, uh, whether it's the right thing to do and what the likely outcome is. And we'll also talk about some of the parallels with the EU's case against Microsoft uh, 15 years ago or so. Um, and then our third major topic will be talking about earnings. We're obviously in the midst of earnings season now, and we're going to talk about uh, Microsoft, Alphabet, Netflix, to some extent Intel as well. Just talk about some of the common themes emerging from the earnings that were reported over the past week or so. And then we'll wrap up, as usual, with our weekly pick, where Aaron will recommend something that he's been using and enjoying recently. So to kick off with our news roundup, if you haven't seen the news, uh, what happened here is the Chinese government has uh, blocked Apple from running uh, the iBooks service and also the movies component of iTunes in China. And, uh, you know, China has always been an interesting market for all Western technology companies, especially those who want to provide online services. And Apple just expanded the range of services it offers in China just about six months ago, uh, or even earlier this year, I think it was. And yet now these two things have been blocked. And as far as I can tell, the reason seems to be uh, there was a new book about Hong Kong uh, that the Chinese government doesn't like, which is available through iBooks. And I suspect, uh, I think there's a movie connected to that as well. Um, and so the Chinese government's kind of retaliating by uh, blocking those services in China. But Aaron, what did you make of all that? Uh, you know, I there are kind of two scenarios in my mind. Um, one is, and I think this is the more likely one, is that this is just um, sort of typical flexing by the Chinese government that they tend to do with American companies from time to time. As you you know, as you watch the history of American companies operating in China, they have moments where they get their hands slapped, they get sort of pushed around where the Chinese government essentially is showing them who's boss. Um, I think there's also the possibility embedded with this that uh, there are unique personalities involved in terms of the government oversight that's happening here. Um, you know, what's fascinating about China and the, I mean, for lack of a better word, the levels of corruption in the Chinese government is that so much of it is locally driven rather than from the top. And uh, not that this is necessarily local, like a local government, but there are a lot of fiefdoms. And uh, it wouldn't surprise me if there are one or two personalities involved in this decision within the Chinese government that uh, are essentially annoyed with Apple. Um, and so, I, you know, it, it's telling that Apple as a company it was not ejected, right, that, that they weren't, that there, that their other offerings and, and Internet services and, and, and sales of iPhones and everything, that those weren't frozen. I, this, this feels very localized for it to feel like a, a real threat to Apple's business in China. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I, I think it'll be... 
it could, as you say, go either way. This could be a really long-term thing that then expands to other Apple services or it could be something that quietly it's reinstated in, in a few weeks' time once the hubbub over this particular issue has died down. And uh, we, we did talk in depth about China in Apple in, back in episode 12. So if this is a subject that you're interested in, you can go back and listen to that episode. Um, but this is one of the dangers of doing business in China. And Apple's benefited from the fact that its products are not um, traditional sort of online services where there are ways for Chinese citizens to get information about the world and where they're, they're actively publishing information or helping people find that information. It's usually Apple's role has been fairly passive. They provide a web browser and then that's subject to all the limitations that exist in China with the firewall and so on. Um, this is one of those rare cases where you know, the content within these services has, has become objectionable to the Chinese government. And so uh, this doesn't usually happen to Apple. And so it may well be this ends up being more of an exception, but it's it's clearly an example of the ongoing sort of tug of war between these Western companies operating in China and the Chinese government and the balance of power between them. And every now and then the Chinese government feels the need to flex its muscles and, and sort of demonstrate that it's still in charge when it comes to some of this stuff as a way of sort of pushing back on things that they don't like. So it'll be interesting to watch how it plays out. Um, the other bit of Apple news this week was um, the new MacBook. It's an updated version of the 12-inch MacBook that was announced last year. Um, it's got spec bumps across the board and uh, a new color as well. There's a rose gold option available now too. Um, you know, this is this was announced by press release, and this is only one of the whole line of Macs that basically are due for an upgrade at this point. I think it's the Mac Rumors site that maintains a, a listing of whether you should buy particular Macs based on when they were last updated and how often Apple usually updates. And I think every single one of the Macs before this week was listed as do not buy because uh, a new device should be imminent. And we've talked a little bit here and there about um, Skylake processors from Intel and how, you know, once those were out, we should start to see updates to the Mac line. You know, this is the first example of that finally happening. And it's something we've been anticipating for a while and I talked about a few times. Um, it's good to see this update. I, I wonder how many more of these press release only announcements we'll get around other Macs or whether Apple will save most of the rest of the line for say WWDC in the summer in June um, and, and announce more details there along with uh, new capabilities in the next version of Mac OS. What did you think about that, Aaron? Well, I, I think um, I wasn't surprised with the with the MacBook being a press release instead of a you know full blown announcement with demos and everything. Uh, only because you know it's a really brand new form factor, and if they're not actually changing the form factor, Apple doesn't tend to talk about it very much. Right. And and it wasn't going to change dramatically this year. I think any hopes that Apple was going to add, a, you know, one or two extra USB-C ports, for example, were, were misplaced. I mean, that, I think that I really do think that's coming, but not in just a year after the original MacBook was released. Um, I do think the other Macs, though, are more likely to get something more, get some on on stage time, some future announcement, and primarily because there are deeper changes that need to happen in the other lines. A lot related to USB-C, but also Thunderbolt 3. Like There are a lot of new technologies that are opening up with the move to Skylake that didn't actually involve the MacBook updating to Skylake this time around. And so I, th I think we'll probably see. And I, I, the rumors are starting to pick up temperature a little now that, uh, that Apple is doing a redesign of the MacBook Pro line. Um, mm -hmm. It's interesting because they haven't really done a, a, you know, a, a big hardware announcement at WWDC. In, in a while, and it's starting to look more like that might happen with the MacBook Pros. Mm -hmm. And the Pros are 
sort of the quintessential developer machine. And so it wouldn't surprise me if they decide to announce updated MacBook Pros at uh, WWDC next month. I, I would also say the the other like non-announcement announcement this week uh, was essentially Apple kind of admitting that the MacBook Air is probably done. Mm-hmm. And, and I only say that because they upgraded the base RAM in it to 8 gigs. They never really made a big deal out of that or talked about it. They made no other updates. And when Apple does that, when they make this tiny bump to uh, a, you know one of its product lines, um, it's usually because that product line is on its way out. And they're just sort of keeping it around because it's on the low end, which is definitely the case with the MacBook Air. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's and interesting. So, I mean, when they... Sorry, you were going to carry on. Oh, I was just going to say. So I think the MacBook Air is officially done. I think that was yeah. the, the nail in the coffin. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, I've been saying that since they announced the MacBook, that it felt like this is the slot that the MacBook Air used to belong in. And so if they didn't evolve the MacBook Air into this slot, it means that MacBook Air is probably going away, that you're going to have the MacBook and then the MacBook Pro. Uh, obviously, the MacBook Pro will probably get some kind of redesign, maybe some of the benefits of... Uh, that have been in the MacBook line, it's already got a bit of that. But uh, yeah, it feels like that's the product line going forward. And this, this, as you say, such sort of seemed to make it, everybody realize that that really is the case that the MacBook Air is going away. Um, the third news roundup topic that we wanted to cover was the Uber settlement. And um, you know, you may be aware that there's been various lawsuits against Uber on behalf of its drivers who are treated as contractors and not employees and therefore have to cover many of the costs of uh, being Uber drivers, including the cars and insurance and everything that goes with that. Uh, they don't get any benefits because they're not employees. And so it can be very expensive without really much benefit to be an Uber driver. And many, many of these drivers would like to be treated as employees and have sued for that right. There have been a couple of jurisdictions where they've succeeded in in uh, winning that right. But for the most part, uh, Uber has settled with these parties. And there's a provisional settlement now around this, which, again, keeps the status of these drivers as contractors rather than employees uh, while extending some small number of new rights to them and so on. And uh, it needs to be approved by the court, as these settlements always do, so it's not final. But, Aaron, what did you make of this? Well, um, I was a little bit surprised that Uber paid out as much as they did to settle. Um, right. I would have thought that they would have hung on longer rather than paying out as much cash as they did. Um, $84 million is a lot and there's still another $16 million on the line if Uber goes public and hits a certain valuation. Um, I mean, so a $100 million settlement payment to Uber drivers seems to basically say, yeah, you probably would have won and have been treated as employees if we didn't pay you to walk away. Um, it'll be interesting, too, because the way class action settlements typically work is there can you can opt out of the class and it'll be interesting to see how many Uber drivers decide to do that because they're unhappy with the settlement. Um, and if that happens, the those cases will still work their way through the courts and can still have the full precedential effect of you know applying to all future Uber drivers where they would be treated as employees instead of contractors. Um, it was also interesting in, in Uber's press announcement about this they basically acknowledged how ridiculous it's been that you could be suspended as an uber driver and never know why Mm. um i have a cousin who drove for uber for a while and he constantly complained about uber in his twitter feed 
um, mm. because it was a bad experience for him. And, and, you know, he was trying to put some public pressure on Uber through his Twitter account to improve things. And then one day he got up, opened the app to, to take some rides and, uh, was suspended and he didn't know why. And there was really no way to appeal the suspension. And as part of the settlement, it looks like Uber's finally going to do that. It's, it's crazy to me that, that they rely so heavily on drivers and, and they haven't figured out the right way to do that process until they were forced to by a lawsuit. Right, yeah. And it's interesting too. I mean, I see that this this class action suit just covers drivers in California and Massachusetts. And so presumably there's still scope for other drivers in other jurisdictions to take similar action and to get a similar result. So it feels like this could be the beginning of quite a long and expensive process for Uber as well, as I understand it. Well, and where it would really matter, I mean, it obviously does matter to an extent at, at the state level, but but uh, once the IRS makes a determination about whether or not Uber drivers should be treated as employees or independent contractors, that would have nationwide effect, and the IRS has its own approach to making that evaluation. And so right. um, that there's still a ton of risk ahead of Uber in spite mm. of the settlement when it comes to the way the drivers are treated as employees or not. Right, right. Great. Well, that wraps up our news roundup. Um, we'll move on to our question of the week. And this week, our question of the week is, what should we make of the EU antitrust action against Google? And this is something that's obviously been in the news this week. The European Commission announced action against Google about Android. I wrote a piece about it for the Beyond Devices blog, which we'll point you to because it drills down into some of this and, and gives my initial take on it. But I've spent some time this week preparing and reading more about this so that we can talk about it in some more depth here. Uh, and so Aaron's going to be asking the questions and I'm going to be doing my best to answer those questions. So yeah, and this first question is a simple one, but I suspect there are a lot of details to cover. Why don't you just kind of give us the summary of what happened this week so we can be up to speed on, on the basics? Sure, yeah. And really this was the, not necessarily the culmination, but the first major milestone in a process that's actually been going on for a year now. Um, so a year ago in April of 2015, the commission the European Commission, and I'll step back for a second. So there's, for, if you're not familiar with the European Union and how it works, there are these various terms I'm going to bandy about somewhat interchangeably, but they do have distinct meanings. So the European Union uh, is a term that re the, that uh, relates to all the countries that are part of this common economic area called the European Union. So there are 27 countries, I believe, at this point. Uh, maybe it's even higher than that. Uh, it's, it's increased since I left when I used to live in the UK. But the European Union is the set of countries that are part of this organization. The European Commission is essentially the sort of governing body of or the executive of the European Union. And it's the one that takes action on these things. And specifically, it's the, the competition office led by a competition commissioner that takes action on this kind of thing. Um, and so it's an administrative process rather than a, a court-based process, although the courts do sometimes get involved as well that investigates and then release, reaches preliminary decisions and then ultimately final decisions on some of these issues. And so what happened this week was this is the first milestone in this case that that European Commission and the Competition Office uh, initiated a year ago investigating Android and specifically Google's um, supposed ab alleged abuse of its dominant position with Android uh, and so the, the formal step that was taken this week is what's called a statement of objections. So following an investigation, the European Commission issues a statement that says these are the things in your behavior that we object to. Um, and you now have a certain period of time to respond to 
the statement of objections before we uh, you know, take that into account and then ultimately reach a final decision. So what happened this week was that, that first formal step following about a year of investigation by the European Commission. So what are the objections, or I should say the allegations against Google? And I guess more importantly, do they hold any water? Yeah, so there are three specific things that the, that the Commission objects to. And um, the, the fact that the European Commission is even investigating this stuff kind of relies on their determination that Google has a dominant position with Android. And so it's worth quickly talking about how that process works. And so it's sort of a three-stage process where you have to first decide how you define the market. You then have to decide that the market share a particular company has in that market is dominant. And then thirdly, you have to decide that that company has abused that dominant position by either restricting agreements or uh, or making agreements with other parties that restrict competition or by um, tying pro- its dominant products together with other products in order to leverage its dominance in one market into uh, another market so it can be dominant there too. And so one of the key things in the, the decision that came down this week was that the EU decided to define the relevant market not as smartphone sales and Android's share of that, but as Android's share of licensable operating systems. Uh, and of course, if you think about it for just a second, you realize there's basically only one other licensable operating systems if you're an OEM, and that's Windows. And obviously, within mobile, it has fairly small share. In Europe, it's actually done better than in other markets, and so it does have decent share. Um, but that makes a really big difference to define it that narrow way because you know one of the things that the European Commission said in its statements was Google has 90% plus share in a lot of European markets according to that definition, which makes it utterly dominant. Um, but if you look at Android's share of the five largest European markets on just share of smartphone sales, it doesn't have 90% in any of them. It has uh, in the 70s in France, Germany, and Italy, it has only 53% share in the UK and then in Spain is the one exception where it has 89% share but if you define it in this much narrower way that the EU wants to define it where it's basically share between Android and Windows then suddenly its share shoots up to you know 87%, 90%, 97% in Spain and so it's really important that it's defined it this way because that allows them to reach this decision that it is dominant in this market whereas in smartphone sales as a whole in Europe it's much less dominant than that so that's the first finding on that basis Uh, Android is dominant and so Google is a dominant company that's not against the law in and of itself it's this abuse of dominance that is alleged that would be a breach of EU law and there are three specific areas where the European Commission says Google has broken uh, the law by by abusing its dominant position so the first of those is that uh, if Android if OEMs want to license uh, Android with the any of the standard Google apps pre-installed, they have to also pre-install Google Search and Chrome and make Google Search the default search engine on the device. And so if you want to participate in the Google mobile services and all the apps that are only available through that flavor of Android, you have to pre-install Search and Chrome and you have to make Google Search the default search engine. Uh, the second is that Google won't allow OEMs to sell both that Google mobile services version of Android and the open source uh, version of Android, AOSP, at the same time. You can sell one, like uh, Amazon, you can sell only the AOSP version, uh, and some of the other Chinese vendors do that too. Or you can sell the official Google version of Android, but you can't participate in both sides of that market. And then the third is that Google pays some OEMs to install 
the Google search app. Um, so it's actually making payments to preserve kind of the exclusivity and that privileged position of the Google search app. Um, and so those are the allegations. And so whether you agree or not depends on whether you think those arguments hold merit, have merit. And, you know, one of the, the issues is, as I say, the way they've narrowly defined the market here. They've, they've defined it as share of licensable operating systems rather than all smartphone operating systems. And that dramatically exaggerates Android's share. Um, the three specific objections that the commission has, the first that Google forces OEMs to bundle these things, well, OEMs have a choice, right? So OEMs can either use the AOSP version or they can use this version. If they choose to use this version, it's because they believe there's real value in all these Google services and so on. And so in most cases, the OEMs are going to be bundling in those Google services regardless. And in most cases, consumers who buy an Android device expect them to be bundled in. That's why they buy the devices. And they certainly want them to be set as defaults and so on. And it's actually the OEM alternatives that people object to in many cases because it, it represents sort of bloatware and it clutters up the device and makes things confusing. So from a consumer perspective, um, you know, there really isn't much of an objection to that. And it's really the OEMs, uh, some of whom might object in some small way to doing this. And this kind of gets at the heart of this case, which is that it seems to be about uh, the EU protecting OEMs and potentially other search engines and browser makers rather than necessarily consumers who seem to be perfectly happy with the way that Android works today. Um, the second objection is the one about uh, not being able to sell uh, Android with Google services attached and AOSP versions of Android at the same time. This is the one that I feel holds a little bit of merit. I think because the challenge here is, yes, you can decide one way or the other. You can be an Amazon and sell only the open source version, or you can be a Samsung and only sell the, the, uh, the Google services version. Um, the problem is, if once you go down the Samsung route, for example, you've got no way to experiment with AOSP. You can't sort of slowly put out one or two devices and see whether maybe if you bundled uh, AOSP Android together with your own services or somebody else's third-party services, would that work? Would you be able to sell it? Could you eventually move entirely in that direction? You can't kind of play around with this. You, you have to stay completely committed or you have to make a complete break with Google. And so it does mean that there's no room for experimentation. So I think that's the one area where this argument has some merit. And to be honest, this is, would be the least damaging ver version or least damaging element of this that, that the EU could force Google to unbundle. The great irony here is that AOSP is a great sign of the openness of Android and, and they're essentially being hit over the head with it now as, as an ex because they offer two different versions and force people to choose between them. So it's kind of funny that, that that's been one of the, the outcomes here. And the third one about paying OEMs to exclusively pre-install the Google Search app, I'm not aware of any OEM that wants to pre-install some other version of Search. So again, I'm not really sure that ending that practice would actually change anything in the market. And that kind of gets to the root of all of this, which is, you know, if Google were to change this, if they would be forced to unbundle some of this stuff, I'm not sure that either OEMs would really want to sell a different version or that consumers would actually want to buy that version either. And that's that's one of the biggest objections here. And it gets to the question of why is the EU doing this? You know, what is the issue here? And, um, you know, there's certainly an argument to be made that there is a prevailing feeling in Europe that big American tech companies, and especially Google and, and to some extent Facebook and others, have destroyed a number of um, European industries, or at least badly damaged them, especially on the media side. And there have been long-standing antagonisms between individual European governments and media companies and other companies in Europe, and Google in particular. And it feels like, to some extent, the EU's taken action here 
on the basis of that animosity towards Google in particular, American tech companies in general. Um, and so, you know, that's one of the reasons why these arguments don't seem to hold that much water is because actually the real reason for doing this is something else. Well, and I mean, this isn't the first time that's happened where the EU is felt it felt like it had to, you know, beat up an American company in what appeared to be protectionism. This happened starting in the late 90s with Microsoft. Right. Um, when the EU brought their antitrust case against Microsoft, um, a case that lasted for many years. Is this a useful parallel for us to think about today when it comes to Google's current problem? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people have made comparisons between the two cases, and I think it's, it's sensible to do that because it, from an American perspective in particular, it, it's probably the most familiar large case along these lines, uh, and especially because it involves another tech company and, and some of the same issues where it's about dominant position and abusing that dominant position. Uh, to uh, to bundle together things that the EU thinks shouldn't be bundled together. And so uh, just to give a brief kind of his- history on the Microsoft case, so back in the late 90s, both the United States government and the EU both started investigations of Microsoft for abuse of dominance. And the EU case was kicked off by uh, a complaint from Sun Microsystems back in 1998, which was saying that Microsoft would not make available to them technical information that they needed in order to make operating systems that would be compatible with Windows or interoperable with Windows so that people could switch between them and businesses could use both systems. And obviously, Sun was peddling an alternative operating system at the time, and this was uh, interoperability with Windows was kind of critical for being able to, to be successful in that. And so they, they complained back in 1998, and that triggered the original commission investigation into Microsoft uh, in February 2000. So just over a year later, uh, the commission expanded the scope of that investigation to include allegations that uh, Microsoft was illegally bundling Windows Media Player into Windows. And it's just a sign of how long ago this was that that was an issue. Um, Later in 2000, there was an initial statement of objections on the original case. And then a year later, there was another statement of objections that bundled in the the Windows Media Player objections. And then there was a third one in 2003. So this process went on for six years, ultimately, and and ultimately resulted in a decision uh, that Microsoft had to uh, open up the technical information and had to unbundle Windows Media Player from Windows in Europe. And so there was a special version of Windows that was sold in Europe from that point onwards that unbundled Windows Media Player and allowed people to kind of install it if they wanted to, but also install other media players of their choice. And at the time, it would have been Real Player and other things like that. But that was the big original Microsoft case in Europe. And then there was a second case started in 2008 and concluded in 2009, which was about bundling as well. In this case, it was about Internet Explorer being bundled in. Um, and that case took about a uh, almost two years, I guess, to process all the way through from the beginning to the end of that case. And then about four years later, Microsoft was fined on the basis that it hadn't complied with the uh, agreements reached at the end of the original case. So that's the Microsoft case. And there are obviously parallels here because it's about a company that's deemed to have a dominant position. It's abusing that dominance by taking an operating system and bundling it with applications in such a way that those applications are kind of pre-installed and preferred versus other applications. There are obviously some big differences. Google is nowhere near as dominant in uh, smartphone market share as Microsoft was in 
desktop PC operating system share back in the day. But again, that's where this narrower definition that the EU is using comes into play because if you use that definition, the market shares are more similar. The other is that Microsoft didn't provide an open store into which anybody could put their applications from which users could buy whatever applications they wanted to. And that obviously is the case with Android. And so there are browser apps, there are alternative search engines that are available in the Google Play Store, which is pre-installed. Um, such that users can choose those if they want to. And in the blog post I did this week, I demonstrated that it seems very few users do want to replace the search engine. Uh, there are only a handful of million downloads of each of the major alternatives. But when it comes to browsers, there's Firefox, there's Opera, there's Dolphin, there's a number of other browsers that have been downloaded tens or even hundreds of millions of times by consumers, suggesting that if consumers do want an alternative, they're, they're happy to find them and, and willing to use them. And so... Again, this is different from Microsoft, where Microsoft wasn't providing you any obvious way to find alternative media players or browsers or whatever and actually kind of try to prevent you from doing that. Um, so there's a difference there, and I think it's an important difference. But obviously the state of competition is very different too, and uh, I feel that the EU's findings here kind of treat it so narrowly that they, they almost wanted to force themselves into reaching this conclusion, but I'm not sure it's warranted by the, the actual merits of the case. You know, it seems ironic that uh, of the two major uh, mobile platforms, right, iOS versus Android, iOS seems far more guilty of the kind of behavior that the EU is angry about. But is mm -hmm. it, I mean, is iOS not, is Apple not a risk here because they're not actually licensing iOS to other uh, manufacturers? Well, it's partly that because of this narrow definition, you know, it wouldn't be caught under this specific definition, but you could broaden the definition, say it's about smartphone operating systems, but there's no way to suggest that iOS is dominant. You know, it has minority market share in every single European country. In many European countries, it's well under 20%. So, you know, the European Union really have no basis for saying that that Apple's operating system is dominant and therefore there's no finding that it could be abusing that dominant position because it simply isn't dominant in the first place. So uh, even if the behavior might be the same, it's not coming from that same position of being a dominant player. Uh, and that's what makes all the difference because that's kind of the first step in, in this process that the commission's going through is a finding that the company is dominant in its market share in a particular market. Right. So it, it's interesting having the history of the Microsoft cases because it seems like those were a lot of work for what in the end seemed to be very inconsequential outcomes. What, what do you think are the likely outcomes in the Google case? Yeah, and I think that's the big issue here is, A, these processes take a long time. I mean, the original Microsoft case took six years, which was kind of ridiculous. And, and by the time it was done, Windows Media Player was a lot less relevant than it had been at the beginning. And there really was far less reason to worry that Windows Media Player would be um, dominant in the market in, in a meaningful way. And of course, it's turned out not to be. Um, you know, Sun Microsystems similarly might have seemed more of a, a, a competitive threat in 1998. By the time 2004 rolled around, I think it was fairly clear that it wasn't that much of a threat. So again, when these processes take so long, often the very problem that they seek to address in the first place has gone away and oftentimes because of market forces. Um, you know, the Internet Explorer case was completed much more quickly. It was about two years. Um, but we're already one year into this case and, you know, Google gets a chance to object, uh, to respond. Um, the EU gets a chance to gather additional information. Um, the EU is separately investigating Google Shopping and the fact that those results are preferred in Google search results. Um, in the statement that was made this week by the Competition Commissioner, she said... Um, 
that uh, we also continue to look at Google's behavior regarding other specialized search services, as well as concerns relating to the copying of third-party content and advertising. So they were kind of signaling there are other avenues that they're pursuing as well. And if, if the Microsoft case precedent gets followed, you could easily see these getting bundled up into the same case and therefore delaying the outcome of the whole case for years to come as they add in these additional things and investigate those and keep uh, augmenting the statements of objections and so on. So that A, this could take a long time. B, whatever it's supposed to remedy, I think may well be, I think it's already frankly being solved by market forces, but may well have changed to such an extent by the time that the decision finally comes down that it's irrelevant anyway. Um, there could be a big fine, and that's that's the single biggest risk here. I think for Google is that there could be a lot of you know hundreds of millions of dollars to pay in fines. Um, the other risk is just that it has to change the way it sells Android, and and you know we're in a global market now, and so you know Windows could be provided in a different version in Europe back in the day, but I'm not sure it makes the same sense to do that with Android today and what's really a global market with all the OEMs selling outside Europe as well as within it. And so it could be quite disruptive depending on exactly what the EU forces Google to do. Some form of unbundling seems likely to be part of the outcome here. But again, it's unlikely to really change the way that Android sells in the market, the versions that people actually buy in the market, the versions that OEMs want to sell. I think the one exception is the one I mentioned earlier where maybe some of the big OEMs would start experimenting with AOSP versions of Android uh, bundled with either their own or third-party services. Um, you know, Microsoft's got an interesting partnership with Cyanogen, which is promising to become the most interesting alternative version of Android over the next couple of years. You know, you could see some other Android AEMs that are currently using the Google version start to fork off in that direction. Uh, as a way to differentiate their services and their devices better. Um, so that's the one possible outcome. But I think the biggest impact is probably the fines that could come down and they could be fairly significant. Well, it'll be fascinating to watch this play out. And thank you so much for that rundown so we know what's happening as uh, the news comes out. Yeah, great. Well, um, I, again, we have this post up on the Beyond Devices blog, so we'll point you to that in the show notes. I, I'm thinking about doing a quick follow-up to it as well, mentioning a couple of the things that I have mentioned in our conversation today. So we'll, we'll link to that if that's up by the time this goes up as well. Well, our third topic today is earnings. We're in the middle of earnings season and we've had uh, earnings from Microsoft, Alphabet, uh, Netflix, Intel and others over the last few days. And so we really wanted to cover some of those, especially some of the themes that seem to be common between those companies. Um, let's start out with Microsoft and Intel. Their fortunes are obviously closely tied together. Uh, both of them reporting results this week that suffered from um, the ongoing decline in the Windows PC business. Uh, Intel obviously taking some fairly dramatic action to remedy their current situation with laying off 12,000 people, which is a fairly significant chunk of their workforce. Um, Aaron, what was your what take on those results in particular? Well, I, um, you know, I, there's clearly a theme of mobile that overhangs almost any tech company announcements these days. And that certainly was the case for Microsoft and Intel. Intel is just obviously that that they didn't move fast enough into the mobile processing space. Now, there was a rumor this week that Qualcomm might lose some of its business to Intel um, as far as Apple is concerned, and, and that would be a chance for Intel to be sort of branching out outside of these sort of main core processing units that they've been doing for decades. I think the other problem for Intel is that not only is the PC market slowing, but Intel itself is slowing down. And if they can't get chips out as quickly as, they ha as they've been able to in the past with the TikTok cycle, that's 
you know, this is, they're coming up on their first two talks in a row, right? Because um, just how technologically challenging it is to, to continue the same rate of advancement. I, I think Intel, they, you know, they obviously have to move into other spaces as far as uh, processors go. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. I feel bad for all the layoffs, so that's always unfortunate. Uh, Microsoft, again, is getting hit by mobile, but I think in a different way. Um, I, I mean, clearly, you know, operating system revenue is going to continue to go down. It's such a strange world. And I, I think, you know, 20 years ago, people would have laughed at you that, that we live in a world where operating systems are free. And uh, the, the pressure for that is just higher and higher than ever. And it's, it's manufacturers that obviously take advantage of that. And companies like Microsoft that, that built, you know, these, these massive revenues on, on licensing operating systems, those, are, those revenues are going away. I think Microsoft, you know, has pivoted to the cloud in a way that is going to be fruitful. I think the problem that they have right now is that you know, when it comes to cloud computing like Azure, when it comes to software subscriptions like Office, I think the problem that they have is that the mobile as a platform is not yet mature enough for the kind of stuff that Microsoft wants to sell. Yeah, that's especially true in Office, um, where I think Microsoft stands to be able to make continue to make a lot of money for years and years to come. The problem is that mobile as a platform just isn't all the way there yet. Um, it, it will come. Um, I think, but but right now Microsoft has to, unfortunately, s sit back and wait for these platforms to become advanced enough that business users can do you know the same kind of advanced things that they do on their on their desktops or laptops. Yeah, one of the challenges is, of course, that they they won't own those mobile platforms either. So to the extent that their office products are challenged there, and then the, the work shifts from PCs that ran Windows to tablets and smartphones that run Android or iOS or whatever, um, you know, that's going to be another area where they lose out. And, and this continues to be the big ongoing challenge for Microsoft is that it's transitioning from a world where it was dominant in productivity software and uh, operating systems for the devices that ran that productivity software to a world where it's not dominant in either of those potentially. And so it's two big revenue streams and very profitable revenue streams of being challenged. I think they are doing quite a good job of ramping up some of the new opportunities like cloud services that you've mentioned of transitioning things like Office to subscription and online-based services and so on. Um, but in that transition, they're going to lose revenue. Um, the new stuff isn't replacing the old stuff fast enough. Um, and the new markets are much more competitive. And obviously companies like Amazon in particular, but also Google uh, have very strong positions in cloud services where they're taking share um, such that Microsoft market share in new markets is not anywhere near as high as it was in the past. Um, you know, I think they're making the best decisions they can under the challenging situations they have to deal with. But really, the a lot of the hands here were dealt some time ago um, by you know Satya Nadella's predecessors, Steve Ballmer in particular, and he has to kind of play with the hand that he's been dealt. And and uh, it's tough, um, but they've they've done a pretty good job of navigating it. They're not being helped by currency fluctuations that continues to be a really big issue you know was for microsoft again this quarter was for google it will be no doubt for apple next week as well um you know there's a lot of um headwind coming from currency and when you're struggling to grow in general then having to take a you know 10 15 20 percent hit from currency declines in other markets really really doesn't help matters either well and i you know i just want to throw in one other little thought about microsoft especially with office What's interesting is that, you know, this declining revenue because Office doesn't work the same on mobile yet, 
is actually the thing that's been protecting Office for decades, which is its complexity. I mean, Office is a very complex set of, of software applications that have been developed over years and years doing the sorts of things. I mean, Excel is a tool that is irreplaceable for, for many, many people. Um, and that's what's protected it, right, is, is this, this sort of decades of development that has made Excel the tool that it is today. That's a really hard thing to all of a sudden transfer over to a brand new computing metaphor, like with a tablet. And, and, and I think that's, that's, that's why the maturation of the mobile space is still um, a problem for Microsoft. I think moving to software subscriptions was a great decision. I think the problem is that the platforms on which, you know, people are, are, are going to be using this stuff in the future are not up to – the platforms aren't sufficiently sophisticated to handle the, the reasons that people prefer Office. Mm, yeah, and so they may well migrate to simpler versions provided by other people. Um, let's talk a bit more about Alphabet's earnings. And it was interesting, obviously, it's the second quarter when we got insights into their other bets business, that all the things that aren't kind of part of the core Google business. And, um, you know, we, we saw a lot of the big picture trends last quarter, and, and those haven't changed dramatically. You know, these other bets are very heavily loss-making. Um, it's interesting. I was struck by the fact that their stock-based compensation alone in the other bets business is basically equivalent to their revenue. It's about ninety percent or something. Um, so just some sign of quite how expensive it is to run these businesses and how little revenue they're generating. Um, there was pretty decent growth, which is a sign that at least those businesses seem to be that that are generating revenue, which is basically Nest, Google Fiber, and Verily are generating. Uh, some growth, despite all the negative stories about Nest over the last month or so. Um, but there are also signs of some belt tightening. So capital, exp- capital spending across the company was down. Um, you know, the, the losses in the other bets have narrowed ever so slightly. Um, some other evidence that spending had come down. And yet the company was also investing more and more heavily in things like data centers to support their cloud services. There was a reference to original content, which presumably relates to YouTube. Uh, and some other areas where they, they are investing money within the core business. And so, you know, even as they're kind of reining in spending a little bit in the other bets, there was some um, increased spending that actually hit margins on the on the core Google side of the business. And it's a sign that they feel the need to continue to drive investment in these new areas that aren't necessarily directly related to the traditional advertising business. Yeah, I think the other bets side of Alphabet right now is the really fascinating one. And again, mobile's a problem. And but the nice thing is that Alphabet realizes this. I mean, they've the whole shift to the Alphabet structure was an acknowledgement that they need to diversify into the future because, you know, PC ad revenue is not going to be the same as mobile ad revenue. And they know that and that's going to continue to be the trend and I think this time investors are disappointed because they got hit a little harder in that space than they have in the past, and only a little bit. I mean, really not dramatically by any means. But what's interesting, and and this is going to be, I think, over the next 10 to 20 years, one of the biggest business stories there is. It will be interesting to see how well Alphabet can really diversify. I mean, they so that they had $800 million in losses in their other bets. Um, this last quarter alone has close to a billion dollars in losses just in their other bets and just in one quarter. I think what's fascinating to um, th- to compare this to is Microsoft's, you know, nearly decade-long efforts to get their online services division going. Um, they by by 2013 they had spent I think it was 10 point they had lost 10.7 billion dollars, 
it to, tr- to try to get, you know, like Bing up and going in search and other areas where they're trying to compete with Google and other online platforms. And, you know, they could never get it going. And, I mean, the nice thing for Microsoft is that they were able to move. They're moving right now with Azure, making more money. And, and uh, Office 365, you know, has promise for them. But, uh, but it'll be interesting to see if Google can pull this off and really truly diversify in a meaningful way that can help them have the same scale of revenue that they've enjoyed for the last 10 years. If that, um, if that happens and if they pull this off, it'll be the kind of case study that business students are learning about for years to come. Uh, well, and it may be the kind of case study they're learning from if Google, if Alphabet fails at it as well. <laughs> but it'll be right. really fascinating yeah, to watch. This. I mean, yeah. Yeah. this is a, they're a huge company and and they're trying to diversify because um, really they've been a one-trick pony for most of their life, you know, based on search mm-hmm. and ad revenue. Right. And, and this is a major this is they've laid the foundation for a major shift and a major change that could carry them for many decades to come and it'll just be so fascinating to watch this play out it'll be slow but uh, mm-hmm. something's going to happen in the end but it things yeah. certainly won't stay the same right the other company that we wanted to talk about briefly was Netflix um, whose earnings also came out they were you know pretty solid um, you know that they're always some sort of uh, blips here and there with regard to user growth are they a little higher a little lower than they're expecting because they do provide quite detailed guidance on that each quarter ahead of time and so um, you know this time they added slightly more than they thought in the US for example um, but they are about to start implementing this price hike um, so $7.99 used to be the price for the streaming service uh, a couple of years ago they increased it to $8.99 and then to $9.99 but existing subscribers have been kind of grandfathered in at uh, their old price until now. And so starting in May and going through the rest of the year, Netflix is going to start raising prices for subscribers. And the order in which they do that is going to be to some extent depending on exactly how long those subscribers have been with Netflix. But uh, all those customers are going to see what's basically a 25% rate increase over the next few months. And it'll be very interesting to see what that does to their churn rates and to their subscriber growth rate here in the U.S., um, you know, they've been challenged for growth in the U.S. somewhat over the last year or so just because they're reaching saturation point. Um, they are still growing, and it's impressive that they are as big as they are already. Um, but with that price increase, um, that will be very interesting to watch. The last time they had a really substantial price increase was back in 2011 when they had their split of the old offering between DVDs and streaming. And uh, they lost a lot of, they lost, I think, 800,000 subscribers in one quarter when they did that. So uh, they're being very much more cautious this time around. It's not a big bang increase and it's not anywhere near as large an increase. Um, But this basically is going to be critical to continue to expand their US margins, which, you know, they have a target of hitting 40% by 2020 and they're well on their way to get there. But one of the keys to that um, is as well as kind of just scale and, and driving down cost per user uh, through scale is increasing pricing. And so it's going to be interesting to see kind of how that objective trades off against kind of losing subscribers. Yeah, I mean, I think Netflix is, I think their growth has to be internationally. Um, and that's just going to take time. I mean, Netflix as a streaming company took a while for, for US users to get accustomed to. And I think there were. I think when Netflix announced their major international expansion, there might have been people who assumed that that would move quickly based on how dominant Netflix was in the U.S. But I don't think that's really how it works. I, you know, you've got to bring people around to a subscription service first, um, where they're 
in a lot of these countries there really hadn't been anything like that. So you're introducing them to a new product or service as a concept, not just as a specific brand. And so it'll take a while, but I think it's going to build up. I, you know, if I was an investor in Netflix, I wouldn't be worried. Um, but uh, it would definitely feel like I needed to be patient. I think Netflix will figure this out, and and we'll we'll be able to. I think their international subscriber growth will start to pick up pace. I don't know when, but you know, mm-hmm. probably not too far into the future. Right, and it's it's already growing pretty well. And the challenge is just that they are. Their offerings internationally, and they had this huge expansion back in January, which we talked about on a previous episode. But um, it's, it, they're mostly targeting what they call elites, um, and there are people in that category in these countries. But you know, at some point they max that out, and so it's a question of do they need to reduce pricing? Do they need to do more with local language support? Because a lot of the content in these countries is either English or Spanish, and so you know, if you speak some other language within those countries, then you're not well served by Netflix right now. And so there's a whole set of things they're going to have to do to kind of capture the next slice of users in those markets once they get beyond the, these kind of elite early adopter types that they're targeting today. So that's another interesting thing that's going to be worth watching over the next couple of years as they evolve that service internationally. Well, I think we'll wrap things up there. We will conclude with our weekly pick. And again, if you're a new listener, um, this is where one of us uh, recommends something that we've been enjoying and using ourselves and we think our listeners might enjoy as well. And this week, it's Aaron's turn. So before I start, I need to remind all of our listeners that Yan and I don't get any compensation of any kind for these picks that we make each week. They really are just products or services that we enjoy. And the reason I feel like I need to make that reminder is because I am so in love with the thing that I'm recommending this week. Like, And so I'm going to sound very effusive, and it'll make it sound like somebody's paying me to be effusive, but it's not the case. Um, just a little backstory on the pick of the week. Last year, as the colder weather was hitting Utah, well, about a month before the cold weather hit Utah, we seeded a, a big stretch of our yard. Um, the problem with doing that is it doesn't give the grass a chance to grow in all the way. Come spring, what happens is the dandelion seeds all wake up before the grass necessarily wakes up. And so before the grass can fill in, dandelions start popping up all over the place because they have space to grow because our, the turf isn't you know fully established yet. And uh, the other day I took my I, we have four boys and we took them all out in the backyard to do um, some heavy weeding sessions and and uh, and then later on a neighbor heard that we had done this and recommended a tool. And so I bought it this week. it came and uh, I immediately fell in love with it. It's called the Fiskers Deluxe Stand-up Weeder. And uh, this thing is basically an elongated tool that has four that has a, a four pronged claw at the end of it, and you essentially position the claw just over the center of the dandelion weed. You press down with your foot, and then as you pry it backwards, it pulls up the dandelion taproot and all, and just leaves a tiny little gap in the lawn that's easily filled in. It's almost like you're aerating your lawn as you go, actually. Um, this thing works so well and so quickly. It's one of the best unitasker tools I've ever bought for any purpose. Um, it's not too expensive, though it wasn't cheap. It was about $35 on Amazon when I bought it. And, uh, but it has been, it has given me all kinds of hope. And I think one of my favorite things about it is, is, you know, I don't have to worry about 
trying to balance letting new grass seed grow with with using um, herbicides at the same time to try to kill off the dandelions. There are no chemicals involved anymore other than just fertilizer. And so I'm really excited about this. In fact, when it came, I, I was so excited I had to get out and try it out. And then yesterday when I got home from work, I, I decided to take another 20 minutes and, you know, probably pulled, gosh, I don't know, maybe uh, 40 dandelions out of the lawn just in 20 minutes. So, so again, it's the Fiskars Deluxe Stand-Up Weeder. Um, if, you're, if you're frustrated with dandelions in your lawn, this is the tool to use. It is, it is really awesome. Good stuff. I think you should start working for this company as a <laughs> promoter or something. You could be very passionate about it. I, I am in love with this tool. All right. Well, we'll put a link to it on the uh, podcast website as well, along with links to some other stuff that we've talked about today. Thank you for being with us. As always, we appreciate you spending the time with us. We hope it's useful and we look forward to being with you again next week. Thanks.